Well, and here I guess I get to introduce my own book, which you all received. Thank you for coming. Thank you for Nine Marks uh, and Crossway, too. Wait a minute. Nine Marks gave us these or Crossway, James? Crossway. So the publisher kindly got copies of this for all of you. If you've already read it, I hope you can give it away to somebody, maybe read through it with them, uh, use it, help use it to disciple them. The bullseye target audience for this book is men who aspire to pastor full-time. Um, so I wrote this to try to demystify that process of discernment in some ways. I also wrote um, somewhat in reaction to ways that I think we can wrongly turn this question in a super subjective direction, like just, do I feel like God is calling me to this? Well, how would you answer that question? How, how would you answer that question in a way that can invite other people's counsel, that can invite some objective reflection on your gifts, your character? So, I'm, so in the book, and, and this is what I'm going to do in the beginning of the, of the second session, I try to reframe the conversation away from calling to aspiration and then give counsel about what does it look like to develop the kind of character and skills and capacities that will enable you to be a faithful pastor. And what does it look like, kind of like we're talking about in the first session, to serve the Lord in these ways regardless of how anybody ever gives you the title or not, regardless of whether anybody ever gives you pay for it or not. So that's kind of a big burden of the book. So I hope you'll find it useful. And like I mentioned, uh, in this second session, men who aspire to pastor full-time are in the bullseye. I suppose the next ring around that bullseye would be thinking about pastors trying to equip uh, those men. Equip, vet, encourage, assess, help send on their way, help think about a healthy church culture for forming that type of thing. And then, of course, I want to teach on this in a way that's relevant to all of us, and I hope you'll find some specific applications throughout about how we as church members relate to uh, our pastors, who they are, what they should be, that kind of thing. Let me just open our time in prayer together. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for your kindness to us in giving us this day. We thank you for the food and fellowship we've had. Father, I thank you for these dear brothers and sisters giving their attention to your word all day long. I pray that you would bring a blessing from it. We pray that you'd provide clarity and instruction for those men who do aspire to be pastors. We pray that for all the rest of us, you'd grow us in understanding the pastoral office uh, and living well in the church in light of it. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So outline for the second session is on the back of your handout. You'll see basically four points, calling, qualifications, training, and waiting, and then just a short conclusion, calling, qualifications, training, waiting. And it does basically follow the kind of rough outline of the book. So if you've read the book, sorry, you're going to hear some repetition. If you're going to read the book, here's a little preview. Um, the setup for this conversation is that oftentimes what happens, particularly in a healthy church where God's Word is faithfully preached, uh, you might be coming along to church faithfully, you might be living out your life contentedly, and then seemingly out of nowhere and seemingly not at your own initiative, you might start to think, wait a minute, I kind of want to do what he's doing. <laughs> I, I want to preach, I want to pastor. I wasn't really looking to do this. I don't feel like this has been a kind of, you know, long-term goal of mine, but the more I listen, the more I want to do it. The more I see what's happening to me and to other people, the more I, I want to give myself to that work and, and, if possible, do it all the time like he gets to do it all the time. That certainly happened to me. So just a little bit of a brief personal history. 
I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area from a, from a young age. I started playing saxophone. I started playing tenor sax. I got deeply immersed in jazz music and just fell in love. And I wanted to become a professional musician. I had a very good teacher from a young age who was kind of my sensei uh, in jazz music. He was kind of guiding me through that process from a very young age. I went to college to study for a music degree in L.A. because you can at least cobble together a living doing musical stuff in L.A. better than you can in most places. Uh, and I was happily pursuing music as a career and as what many people would call a calling. Uh, but the church I started going to in college, uh, John MacArthur's church, Grace Community Church up in Sun Valley, California, uh, I, what the preaching was doing to me made me want to be an instrument of that same thing in other people's lives. And so I spent the rest of my college years trying to preach and teach and lead stuff on campus and get mentored and study scripture and share the gospel with people and try to kind of practically get my feet wet to see if this is something I should change direction to. So I'm very much speaking out of my own experience. And a lot of people, when they have an experience like what I had, I was not looking to be a pastor. I was not looking to change directions. I was not in any way dissatisfied with the hard scrabble life of trying to eke out a living as a musician that seemed to lay before me. It was just all something that came out of the blue, seemingly. And a lot of people use the word calling to describe that experience. And I understand why. Uh, because it seems like it didn't come from you. Uh, it's a, a kind of experience that might come upon you. And so, so there's common terminology in evangelical Christian circles that talks about calling to ministry. Are you called? Did God call me? Am I called? How do I figure out if I'm called? What people mean when they say that is something like, I have a constraining, settled, deeply rooted desire to serve full-time as a pastor. Now, if we just look at the way people are using language in that sentence. I'm called to be a pastor, said by somebody who's not yet a pastor. I want to suggest there's two presumptions in using that language. That presumption doesn't mean it's necess- is necessarily wrong. It doesn't mean the things presumed are, are necessarily untrue, but it means you're assuming something, two things I want to say, and, and those aren't necessarily true. That's why I'm calling it a presumption. So you should see on your handout double presumption. Number one, you are or soon will be qualified to be an elder. We'll talk about eldership in a minute. Second presumption, you are or soon will be sufficiently gifted in pastoral ministry that a church should pay you to do it. If I were to say I'm called to ministry back when I was a fledgling musician, that, that, would, that would say, well, I, sh- I should change trying to be a musician, and I should go try to become a pastor uh, because God wants me to. That's the kind of kicker in that language. Now, I do think God gives gifts to His people. I do think God does lead His people. I do think He even does that sometimes in subjective ways we can't fully explain. I'm not trying to deny all of that, but I am sort of picking a fight with this language of calling for a couple of reasons. Let's back up. Let's talk about the office of eldership for a minute. We've been using that language throughout. It might be you're unfamiliar with that language if your church doesn't call its pastors elders. Maybe you've not heard that before. So when Paul says in 1 Timothy 3, he talks about the office of overseer. And then he goes on uh, in a a parallel passage in Titus in in the same discussion of the same qualifications and refers to them as elders, Titus 1.5, that you might appoint elders in every town. Scripture uses three terms interchangeably, elder, pastor, overseer. 
They're just three names for one office, and it's the office in the church of spiritual leadership, uh, of teaching publicly, of having oversight over the affairs of the church. Um, the New Testament, whenever you see elders in a local church, they're in the plural, so overseers and deacons in Philippians 1.1, or James 5.14, if you're sick, call the elders of the church to pray for you. Um, or again, Titus 1.5, Paul tells Titus to appoint elders in every town, meaning in each of the churches that would have been in those towns to have multiple elders. So the qualifications for eldership, which we're going to look at, are in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. The role is further fleshed out in Acts 20, verses 17 to 35, where Paul gives a charge to the Ephesian elders about how they're to care for God's church. It's further fleshed out in 1 Peter 5, 1-5, where Peter exhorts the elders who are among those churches. Now, there should be multiple elders in every local church. So here at New Covenant, it's uh, James and Jeremy right now. So two elders, and I know they're on the lookout for raising up and appointing others. Uh, my own church, Capitol Hill Baptist, has 25, maybe 26 elders. Um, now, not all elders are paid. It's an important distinction. Paul says in 1 Timothy 5.17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. When he says double honor, that should include an element of financial compensation. That's part of the natural kind of range of that language. And especially what he's talking about is there may be some elders who are especially gifted in teaching, some elders who especially give themselves to teaching. The church should have a regular diet of preaching and teaching God's Word, and it's time-intensive work. It's hard work. It takes labor to teach faithfully. And so that compensation is especially tied to the labor in the Word because that's what it takes to feed a church a regular diet of preaching and teaching. Of course, if you're in a position where you have to be bivocational and squeeze it in around the margins, you do the best you can. But there's clear principles in Scripture to pay elders, especially those who are devoted to teaching. Galatians 6.6 6 says, the one who is taught the Word should share all good things with the one who teaches. So, with those two facts in view, that elder is the pastoral office throughout the New Testament, and that not all elders are paid, some are, some aren't, the pay tends to be tied to public teaching, we can split this, calling of quest, uh, this question of calling into two. You'll see that on your handout. We can divide calling into two distinct questions. Should you be an elder, and should being an elder be your job? So, our church at Capitol Hill, we have about 25 elders, and only six or seven are full-time. The rest have day jobs. Here at New Covenant Baptist, James is full-time in the church, and Jeremy, do you even get paid part-time, or is it just… Okay, so Jeremy is straight up a volunteer elder. So, one elder in the pay of the church, one elder not. Um, so, one question for, for you brothers here, maybe brothers who have not thought at all about becoming a full-time pastor, one question from, from me would be, have you ever considered serving as an elder? Is that anything you aspire to? Is it anything you desire? When you think about the work of shepherding, of caring for people's souls, of teaching God's Word publicly, of having overall leadership and oversight in the church, is there anything in that that appeals to you? Would you enjoy any of that type of work? Would you want to give yourself to it over and above your job and your other responsibilities to shepherding, equipping, raising people up in maturity in Christ? Does that appeal to you? Is it something you'd want? Maybe even it's 5, 10, 15 years down the road. If you're still a member of the church you're currently serving in in 10 years, is there a good reason why you wouldn't or shouldn't be an elder in that church? So in other words, 
If you don't at all aspire even to the office of elder, I would at least encourage you to consider why not. Now, remember the first talk, not everybody has every gift, right? And part of being an elder is being able to teach God's word. So there is an element of teaching that we'll get to. But I at least want to challenge you, kind of put the rock in your shoe. Have you even thought about it? So there's two different questions here. Should you be an elder? And should being an elder be your job? You can be an elder without it being your job, which should take some of the existential pressure off here. This distinction where you can do the work of an elder, but it's not necessarily your full-time job, that's freeing. Pastoring is not all or nothing. All the lay elders in my church are pastors every bit as much as I am. Now, there's practical differences. I get to give more time to it. I get to give it my primary focus. But I mean, our elders counsel, they teach, they preach, they handle all sorts of difficult pastoral situations, they marry people, they do marital counseling, they do funerals. They, I mean, they are pastors. They do pastoral work. So if you have a desire to do ministry, but you're just not sure what that looks like practically, it's helpful to consider that whether you will ever serve as an elder and whether that service will be your job are two different matters. Those are two different questions. You can look at each individually. I want to briefly suggest two problems with the language of calling as it's typically used in churches today. One problem is exegesis, meaning biblical interpretation. Just to say, Scripture never uses the word calling in this way. Now, that means we don't have to use the word calling in this way in order to be faithful to Scripture. It doesn't mean we can't use the word calling in this way, because sometimes you can use a word. It's not necessarily used that way in Scripture, but as long as everybody knows what you're talking about and you can sort of point to the text and, well, I'm explaining this, 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 and this, well, that's okay. My question for the word calling is, does it really do the job? So Scripture uses the word call to talk about God's effectual act of saving us. That's Romans 8.30. It uses the word call to talk about the life of holiness to which he's summoned us. That's Ephesians 4.1. The closest the Bible comes to using the word calling in this way is 1 Corinthians 7.17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. Paul then instructs Christians who are under various obligations not to seek release from them. But here, Paul uses the word calling to describe something that's already the case some concrete responsibility or obligation you already have, not what you desire or that what you one day might be. My problem with calling is that it attributes to God something that you can't be sure of until it happens. There are several years where I desired to be a pastor but didn't yet serve as a pastor. I tried to be faithful in my own local church. I tried to disciple people and teach. I was kind of bending my life in this direction, but it was several years between the birth of a very serious desire and that coming to any kind of fruition. And I want to hold that aspiration lightly. Maybe there's other ministries the Lord would direct me into. Maybe my family would have other needs I would have to detour to provide for. Another problem with calling is that it implies you know God has done something before he has done it. This creates at least the potential for the problem of entitlement, of thinking God has called me and nobody can tell me otherwise. God has called me, so you better recognize my calling. God has called me, so I better get some opportunities to preach and lead stuff around here, etc. As opposed to what I'm going to encourage you to say instead is I aspire. That's why the subtitle of the book is a guide for the aspiring. Aspire is in Scripture. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 the saying is trustworthy, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. In other words, if you desire that, you desire something good. 
And I would say aspiration has several advantages over calling. It's more biblical. Here it is, just right here in Scripture, used in this way, tied to this office. Uh, I would argue that it has a tendency to be more humble, that is to promote humility, to say, well, what it means to aspire to be something is to recognize that there's actually development of character. There's actually development of skills that needs to take place in order for me to say that's what I am. So to say I aspire means I recognize there may well be a gap between present me and what I hope will be future me, and I'm prayerfully working toward and trying to grow and train and develop in that direction. Aspiration recognizes that gap. It honors that gap. I would also suggest that aspiration is fruitful and freeing in the sense that it points out a direction. We're going to talk about the qualifications to eldership. If you want to be an elder, here are your marching orders. Here's what you should measure up to. So study those, figure out ways you're falling short, and prayerfully try to grow in those areas. And again, as I mentioned, aspiration is freeing in the sense that it's not about trying to discern, uh, has God sort of zapped me with the right spiritual electric shock to say, you must go be a pastor, (laughs) right? It's not about trying to figure that out kind of in the secret recesses of my heart. It's about trying to grow, serve the Lord, measure up to the qualifications for elder. And if the Lord wills, boy, would I love to do this for my job. And boy, am I grateful to get to do this for my job. I absolutely love that I get to spend my days doing the things that I do. So point one of this message was sneaky. The paper says calling, but I'm going to tell you right now to scratch that out and write aspiring. If you're taking notes on the handout, scratch it out lest you be misled. Point one, aspiring. Point two, qualifications. I've already mentioned these. I'll just read through them, and in this point, we'll kind of walk through them together. 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 7, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, Sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. As the New Testament scholar D.A. Carson has observed, these lists are remarkable, and I say these because it's here in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 as well. These lists are remarkable for being unremarkable. With only a couple exceptions, the qualifications given in these two lists are elsewhere required of all Christians, which makes it relevant for all of us because what every Christian should be, an elder must be. So it's pointing out the pattern of Christ-like character. Men who are really meant to embody this, all the things that all the rest of us are called to, they have to exemplify or they should not be in the office. So both lists start with above reproach. That doesn't mean perfect. If it did, no church would have elders. I sure would not be an elder if it meant perfect. 
Instead, to be above reproach is to be free of obvious inconsistency, to have no glaring fault that could easily be pointed out and agreed on to the discredit of your character. The phrase husband of one wife could be more literally rendered one woman man. I don't think this means an elder must be married. We have single elders in our church. We're happy to. Uh, Nor does it necessarily prohibit a man who has been divorced and remarried, though that gets into very complicated situations. Instead, it's best to see the qualification as requiring sexual fidelity. A married man must be faithful to his wife. A single man must be chaste and embody exemplary self-control. And now many of the other qualifications root in self-control and in other fruits of the Spirit. So this includes sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. That's basically control over your own appetites, your own responses, sort of self-control writ large and played out in different areas. Continuing down the list, we see hospitable. That means offering generous help to Christians in need especially when that need is incurred for the cause of the gospel. Hospitality is being large-hearted and open-handed with resources God has given you, whether it's your time or food or home or money. Two qualifications warn of being ensnared by the devil. First, that an elder must not be a recent convert. He has to be tested. He has to be tried. He has to have been through some spiritual winters and demonstrate some sustained faithfulness over time. And also that a man must have a good reputation with non-believers. So the trap Paul's highlighting here is hypocrisy. If a man's consistently godly, even non-believers will recognize that. They'll see the integrity. You know, if he's one man at church and another man at work, he has no business being an elder. A good question to ask of anyone that a church is considering appointing as an elder is, would anyone in his workplace, especially non-Christians he works with, be surprised to learn that he's a leader in his church? Would they be like, oh, of course, yeah, that that makes sense. He seems like the most Christian guy I know. Like, of course he's a leader in his church. Or would they be like, wait, him? Right? There's a, there's a reflection and a recognition that can happen even in the consciences of non-believers. That's a useful readout on a brother's character. The next qualification takes a bit more work. I think for the sake of time, I'm going to slightly glance over it. This is managing his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? The parallel qualification in Titus uses slightly different language. It raises the question of whether it means that an elder's children have to be believers. I think the short answer is, uh, while while parents uh, as Christians are commanded to disciple and nurture and instruct our children, we are not able to control their response to that over time in the sense of whether they're really born again. Now, you can see from a man's overall management of his household, reflected in his children's broad behavior, their general pattern of life reflects his leadership, his instruction, how he, or how he oversees the home. But it's not in any man's capacity to bring about his children's new spiritual birth. And so I think what Paul's requiring is something that a man actually is responsible for, which is the overall pattern of behavior of his children, not whether they are believers in the sense of born again. Um, again, does this, man, does this mean that an elder must be married and have children? I, I think the answer is no. It's just assumed that's the normal state. That's the normal expectation. Again, we have elders who are single and serve very faithfully. Uh, the conclusion Paul draws from this is important. 1 Timothy 3.5, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Leadership in the home 
is a proving ground for leadership in the church. A man should be entrusted with God's flock only if he is proven faithful with the flock God has already given him. So managing a household includes financial provision, competent administration, the discipline and nurture of children, and attending to the physical, emotional, and spiritual flourishing of every member of the household. For those of you who don't aspire to be pastors in any sense, I hope part of what you're getting from this is God's care for God's church in requiring that the leaders, the shepherds of the church, measure up to Christ-like character, both for the sake of their own integrity and handling that leadership, and in the sense of providing models, providing uh, lived examples of how we should be following Christ together. This is an, an element of God's care, His provision, His protection. How many horrific headline-grabbing scandals would have been averted if churches only appointed men as pastors who live like this? So this is a high standard. Prayerfully, it's a standard that I and the other pastors of my church try to keep living up to. When we have an elder who fails to live up to this standard, we will handle it as needed. That could be, depending on the nature of the the nature of the sin, the nature of the discipline, it could be simply a man result, resigning from the office. It could be a man resigning and having to give kind of a public confession and accounting of what happened. Uh, that's part of a church undertaking the responsibility for saying, uh, yes, we think this man is qualified, where there should be discipline and public accountability if he ceases to be. Uh, the last uh, qualification we haven't addressed is actually back up in verse 2, and it's able to teach. An elder must be a capable teacher of God's Word. Titus 1.9 gives us a little more detail. He must hold firm to the trustworthy Word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. So to be an elder, you must be a teacher of Scripture. You must be able to tell God's people what, God word, what God's Word means and what He would have us do in light of it. You must know God's Word well enough to be able to demonstrate not only what it means, but what it doesn't mean to correct error and help uh, improve people's understanding of it. Now, this doesn't mean that every elder must be able to preach in the sense of serving up the Sunday morning sermon week by week. Uh, that's why, that's one of the reasons I think why Paul makes a distinction between different elders' ministries, especially those who labor in the Word and doctrine. On the one hand, every elder has to be able to teach. On the other hand, some elders have a special gifting and are specially devoted to it. Uh, so I think there's errors on both sides here. You could have a church where they maybe just want a warm body to fill the slot and feel like we need somebody and he's been around for a long time and kind of let's put him in, okay. Well, he needs to be able to handle God's Word. He needs to be able to help people grow spiritually through handling God's Word and applying it to their lives. That at least has to mean conversation. Ideally, it should be able to have a little more public manifestation, though we want to be flexible about that. On the other hand, you could say you could have such a high standard where it's like, you know, your test for eldership is preaching a four-week four series over the summer, right? <laughs> I think that would, be, that would be setting the bar a little too high. I think they'd be getting a little bit carried away. I think there could be a diversity of teaching gifts and different levels of comfort uh, in different settings. We're, we want to be careful neither to set the bar too low nor too high. So these qualifications boil down to three basic points. You'll see those on your handout. Number one, an elder must be an exemplary Christian. What should be true of all Christians must be true of him. Number two, an elder must be able to lead others, and the first place we should look to find that out is his family. 
So we should be able to see the kind of man he's going to be in church leadership from looking into his home. And then third, an elder must be a capable teacher of God's Word. When we put all these three together, we learn that an elder's most crucial means of leading are his example and his teaching. Elders walk in the ways of Christ, instruct Christ's people in those ways, and exhort others to follow. A faithful elder doesn't say, go ahead, nearly as often as he says, come on, come follow me in the path I'm already walking. A few other points of application here. What should you do if you aspire to pastor? You should make these qualifications your compass. A compass keeps pointing in the same direction no matter what your local terrain is. You might have to cross a stream, you might be going over a mountain pass, you might get lost and go through some trees, but the compass is always going to tell you where north is. Because the compass always tells you where north is, it's strategic. You can keep moving in that direction regardless of whether you're stuck in a job you don't like. You can keep moving in that direction regardless of whether you have, you know, a a child born unexpectedly with health challenges that takes up all kinds of time and money and effort and you just can't, you just can't put your, you know, time into preaching or teaching or study the way you thought. Well, that's part of what God's ordained for you. You can demonstrate godliness and Christ-like character in shepherding your family through that hardship. Making the qualifications your compass means you're going to kind of keep aiming in this direction regardless of what detours the Lord sends you on. Again, another application for all of us uh, is that this is what you should fundamentally be looking for in a pastor. If you have the opportunity to serve on a search committee, or if, uh, if an elder is nominated to your church, or even a lead preaching pastor, this is what you should consider fundamentally. There's all sorts of stuff that's easy to kind of chuck into that bucket of what you're looking for in a pastor. Charismatic personality, big vision, track record of growth, blah, 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 blah. This is what makes a pastor, this kind of Christ-like character and basic ability to teach. So you should be on the lookout for men who uh, do that. You know, just, just speak to the members of New Covenant Baptist for a minute. I mean, I'm sure James and Jeremy are happy to hear about men who are ministering to you in that way. Men who, maybe it's right now, or maybe you could see that potential a few years down the road. Uh, You know, if you're benefiting from a brother's ministry and you think you're seeing that kind of consistent godliness, it's helpful for the elders of a church to hear about that. Whether you think it's full-blown, ready to be an elder now, or this could be somebody to keep keep an eye on and try to encourage and equip over the long haul. Uh, Section three, training. Training. So again, coming back to particularly the brothers who aspire to full-time ministry. If your mindset is aspiration, if these character qualifications fundamentally, as well as ability to teach, if that's your compass, how do you think about training for this role? And my fundamental point here is that training to be a pastor is much more like apprenticeship than it is like a professional qualification and certification. Here's what I mean. Uh, A lot of crafts formerly have been taught through apprenticeship, and some still are. Right, so like in the trades, like if you're a plumber, you know, you go through, you're an apprentice, you're a journeyman, you, you have to put in certain amounts of hours, et cetera, under instruction. You learn all kinds of these practical skills from doing it on the field, working with somebody more experienced, et cetera. So we still teach trades like this, but in earlier versions of different economies, many more things were taught by apprenticeship, where you just learn by watching you watch the master work, they tell you what to do. Then you start doing some of your own and, and they give you feedback. And then eventually you get to a certain level and you could be the sort of independent producer. 
So you shouldn't view preparing for pastoral ministry like a profession where you simply get a degree, pass a test, poof, you're good to go, and you're credentialed in that profession. It's far more holistic, far more deeply rooted, far more personal. So here's just six points of counsel. These are basically headlines from chapters. Could have picked a bunch more, but these are sort of highlights. Number one, learn to pastor from faithful pastors and healthy churches. Here my motto is, learn health from the healthy before you try to lead the unhealthy to health. Learn what it feels like to be part of a church where people are speaking the truth in love. Learn what it feels like to be ministered to by men who meet these qualifications and can point out things in your life gently and graciously where you might be falling short. Learn what it feels like to be having these real conversations of holding sin accountable, where sin's not just swept under the rug, but where pastors are actually shepherding and bringing people back from straying from Christ's ways. I would prioritize a season of marinating in a healthy church, especially if you can have access to what's going on in the leadership and learning from that. I would prioritize that way above seminary. And I say that as someone who has two seminary degrees and is currently teaching in a seminary. If any of you seminary guys are free on Tuesday nights in the fall, you can come to my RTS class on John. Please sign up. But a healthy church is more important. A healthy church will do more to form your character and your sense of what it means to be a faithful pastor. It's like a medical residency. It's like learning how the body works well and functions properly, not just through anatomy, but through a shadowing and experienced doctor, seeing how they're working, seeing what they're doing, following in their footsteps, learning from them, and then getting increasing responsibility where they're looking over you. Our church does this by means of a five-month internship that James and Jeremy have both done, uh, where it's full-time. We set the brothers aside for it. They, their two tasks are basically observing the church and studying the church, meaning what Scripture teaches about a local church. It's kind of five-month medical residency for pastors, equivalent. There's a lot of book study, but it's a whole lot of observation, discussion, asking questions, learning from the practitioners. If you can't do something like that full-time, you might approach a pastor about how you could do something like that on your own, kind of one-on-one. What about a little bit of a course of reading and sitting in on some meetings and things like that and getting a little dose of that uh, through a particular pastor's mentoring? The second word of counsel, elder before you elder. This is a little bit like Emily's question from the first Q&A about uh, how do I try to speak truth and love to people? I've just tried to make a habit of having spiritual conversations, getting to know people, finding out kind of what their spiritual story is, finding out how they're doing. Uh, I would say you should aim to be mistaken for an elder before you are appointed an elder. So if someone shows up at your church, they're brand new, nobody's talking to them, you get to know them, you find out how they're doing, you get to know their story, you encourage them, you try to help them meet other people in church. And, you know, if Pedro starts doing that to somebody and and he's kind of their main point of contact at New Covenant and, oh yeah, Pedro introduced me to this person, that person. I mean, they they might think, oh, is Pedro one of the elders around here? Like, is he in charge? Like, oh no, he's just a faithful member, just serving, loving, encouraging, and taking spiritual initiative in people's lives. Like we talked about before, you don't need anybody's permission to set a godly example or to teach others and counsel them from God's Word. Uh, The basic areas of discipleship, hospitality, evangelism, counseling, those are ways you can just put out feelers into people's lives, find needs to meet, encourage them. You know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5.14, 
we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. That's an exhortation to the whole church, how we're all supposed to relate to each other. So if you want to be particularly exemplary in doing that, you will begin to have the character, begin to have the sort of footprint, begin to have the kind of imprint on the church that an elder would. Third exhortation, if you want to be a leader, then lead something. If you can, start with a family. Basic principle here is that authority flows to those who take responsibility. There are reasons why Paul points to family leadership as an entrance exam for church leadership. Like a church, a family is a close-knit organism. Like a church, a family is populated by sinners. Like a church, a family has work to do. That work includes not just the physical but the spiritual nurture of children, Ephesians 6.4, and a husband's care for his wife, like an elder's care for his flock, aims at her growth in likeness to Christ. That's Ephesians 5.25-27. So here's a test for an aspiring pastor. Can you persuade a worthy woman to marry you? Would it be in a godly, mature Christian woman's best interest to submit to you for the rest of her life? If you do marry, eagerly embrace God's gift of children. Children are a blessing from the Lord in their own right, and raising children will prod your character and capacity to lead in ways that little else ever will. Being a father has done far more to prepare me to pastor than seminary ever could. Here's Herman Bovink celebrating how children change their parents. It's a long quote, but it's glorious, so I'm going to read the whole thing. For children are the glory of marriage, the treasure of parents, the wealth of family life. They develop within their parents an entire cluster of virtues, such as paternal love and maternal affection, devotion and self-denial, care for the future. Involvement in society, the art of nurturing. With their parents, children place restraints upon ambition, reconcile the contrasts, soften the differences, bring their souls ever closer together, provide them with a common interest that lies outside of them, and open their eyes and hearts to their surroundings and for their posterity. As with living mirrors, they show their parents their own virtues and faults force them to reform themselves, mitigating their criticisms and teaching them how hard it is to govern a person. The family exerts a reforming power upon the parents. Who would recognize in the sensible, dutiful father the carefree youth of yesterday? And who would ever have imagined that the lighthearted girl would be changed by her child into a mother who renders the greatest sacrifices with joyful acquiescence? The family transforms ambition into service, miserliness into munificence, the weak into strong, cowards into heroes, coarse fathers into mild lambs, tender-hearted mothers into ferocious lionesses. My counsel is if you want to be a leader, then lead something. And actually, the thing part of that is important. It's not just someone, it's something in the sense that any type of institutional leadership will help train you for more. Whether that institution is a family, whether it's a Bible study, whether it's a small group, whether it's taking on a new role in your work. 
there's going to be parallels and analogies between any type of institution. People got to get along. They got to agree on the rules. They got to decide how to handle disagreements. They have to come to consensus. You have to learn the kind of push and pull of actually helping people get from point A to point B. That could be as simple as a reading group and deciding what book you're going to read next and being diplomatic about people's preferences. Or it could be, like I said, it could be in your, in your work life. It could be within the family. It could be a, a campus Bible study where you try to start something and then hand it off to somebody and, and leave it better than you found it. Any work that you do in leading institutions will shape you. Who sets the agenda? Who makes decisions? How are disagreement and dissent handled? What compromises can you live with. All that will equip you to be a better institutional leader in the church. Number four, master and be mastered by Scripture. One of the hardest seminary classes I took was with a prof called Peter Gentry. It was Greek exegesis of Isaiah. We had to read several chapters of Isaiah in the Hebrew, and then the final exam was on all those chapters, everything we'd read for the class. It was like 14 chapters We could use no tools or helps or cheat sheets or anything. He just provided a small amount of vocabulary. If the word was used less than five times in the whole Hebrew Bible, he would put that in there. Thanks. You appreciate that. So what I did to prepare was I just read the text again and again and again. I would read it out loud. I would walk around empty classrooms and just read it and read it and read it and read it until some of the Hebrew phrases started to like stick in my mind that I'm like half memorizing the Hebrew because I needed to know every sort of nook and cranny of it because I could be tested on any of it. If you're a pastor, there's a sense in which every day of your ministry is like that test. You're accountable for this whole book. People will bring you stuff from their whole lives that is relevant to stuff in far remote corners of here that you might not be studying devotionally. And you need to figure out what can I say to this person about this hard issue in their life that maybe I've not really thought about before? (laughs) Or how can I answer this question they've brought me about this obscure passage of Scripture that's kind of hard for their faith because it's bringing up some tough ethical issue about this Old Testament legislation, about this, that, and the other thing. In order to pass the test, you got to know the whole text. Every day of ministry is a test like that. So you need to master Scripture firsthand and be mastered by it. I would encourage two strategies for trying to master Scripture, reading for breadth and reading for depth. Reading for breadth would be big chunks. How do you read the whole thing over time? Bible reading plans like the McShane plan that takes you through all of Scripture in a year and the New Testament twice. Or a practice of sitting down and reading through whole books at one go. You know, read Isaiah. Block out two hours on a Saturday, read Isaiah. You'll get through it in two, two and a half hours, something like that. You take in the whole thing. How can you read for breadth? How can you read to put together the big story? Figure out how it all fits together. How can you get more familiar with some of those neglected parts and how they contribute to the big storyline? Repeated rereading of all of Scripture is a really good practice for an aspiring pastor, but something you've never done. I probably... I probably read through the whole Bible in a year five times in a row when I was in kind of college and thereafter. At least, at least did that five times. Uh, also reading strategies for depth. So that would be repeated rereading, meditation, memorization. You could split up a book into chunks, read a chunk of it every day for a month. Next chunk every day for a month. And the third chunk every day for a month. If you do that with John, seven chapters a day, 
You'll have read the whole thing 30 times in three months. It'll get under your skin. I've also found Scripture memory to be a very fruitful practice. And again, memorizing big chunks, taking on chapters or taking on whole books and just going verse by verse, a verse a day, you review what you've already got and you add a verse if you've got time. I would encourage you to saturate yourself in Scripture. There's no support for having the exact wording of Scripture on the tip of your tongue for when the question is asked. There's no substitute. And then be mastered by Scripture. The point of reading Scripture is for Scripture to get the better of you. The point of reading Scripture is for Scripture to be supreme in your life and your thoughts and your affections. So you want to read with an open heart, confessing sins to the Lord, praising Him for what He's done, turning what you read into meditation and thinking about how to apply it practically. Fifth piece of counsel, take every teaching opportunity you can get. So Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.2, be ready in season and out of season. That's in the context of preaching the Word. Uh, again, an elder must be able to teach. So when I was first starting out thinking about wanting to become a pastor, that was advice that a friend of mine gave me. Just take every teaching opportunity you can get. And that advice has served me well by God's grace. Again, back to the two questions. If we split the calling of uh, if we split the question of calling into two questions, first, should you be an elder? Second, should being an elder being your job? Being an elder doesn't necessarily have vocational implications. You could be an elder and stay in your job. So the the question of should you make this your job is really fundamentally tied to how much do you like preaching and teaching? How good are you at it? And secondarily, a little bit of just the kind of overall leadership capacity, leadership gifts. Yeah, your ability to kind of be at the helm of an organization and, and your ability to lead a church. Um, but fundamentally, the sort of biblical distinction like we saw is compensation tied to teaching. So very practically, if you're trying to wrestle through this whole calling to ministry question, that question of how well you preach and teach and how much you like doing it is a big one to answer. All things being equal, the more you preach and teach, the clearer things will become. It's not necessarily going to be a catch-all and answer every question, but the more you're preaching and teaching, the better you're doing it, the more people are responding, that's more weight in the direction of, okay, maybe you do pivot practically and change directions. Whereas if you're finding it, it's really hard work and you don't like it that much, or if you're finding the reviews and the feedback is very mixed, if you're finding, yeah, man, I'm not really sure. I'd want to do this week after week after week after week after week after week. Well, that's useful. You might be able to serve very faithfully as a lay elder, but not necessarily full-time as a preaching pastor. So what teaching opportunities can you seek or make? Can you lead a small group? Teach an adult Sunday school class. What about a children's Sunday school class? There are few better tests of your ability to hold attention in preaching than whether you can keep an audience of hungry six-year-olds engaged with what you're saying right? The skills you learn teaching children, Jake, you've been teaching kids? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, the skills you learn in trying to hold the attention of children and communicate big truths in simple ways will pay off big time in any other preaching and teaching you do. Could you give an evangelistic talk at a summer camp or a student event? Can you preach in your current church or the church you grew up in or your grandma's church? 
If you're, put, if you're pursuing preaching opportunities, but they just aren't coming, ask God for them and wait patiently for His answer. I would also highly commend to you the practice of pinch hitting, right? Like in, in baseball, when there's a substitute hitter, they swap out somebody, there's somebody, you know, the designated hitter or somebody else comes in to hit at last minute, right? In running a church, things happen. Somebody gets COVID, some, somebody's kid gets sick, you know, you got to drop out at the last minute. The more willing and able you are to do that on short notice, the more you might stand a chance of kind of getting onto the team and getting into the regular rotation. The first sermon I ever preached, I preached on like three days notice in the middle of a mission trip. So that was some advance notice, but I was not planning to preach that sermon. <laughs> the missionary asked me to. I was talking to him about aspiring to being a pastor. He's like, great, why don't you preach in our church on Sunday morning? <laughs> Okay, it was only a short sermon. It was like a baptismal devotional. It was not like a 50-minute deal. But I mean, still, it was only three days. I didn't have a whole lot of time to think about it. So I would commend the practice of pinch hitting. Of course, there's qualifications here. You need to be faithful with your other stewardships. It's the kind of question Nick was asking about burnout and busyness. Uh, it might be that for a season, you're not doing much of this, and that's okay. But I would encourage you to prioritize teaching opportunities. Number six, what about seminary? What about seminary? Again, I've, I've kind of painted this picture of apprenticeship, of personal teaching, training, developing character, learning from those who are doing it. Where does seminary fit into that? Well, I think seminary is helpful in its own right. I think it's beneficial to get the toolkit of exegesis, systematic theology, church history. It's good to get refined by professors who focus and specialize in all these things. Uh, it's good to go deeper. Um, than in what you might study on your own. Also, frankly, pragmatically, churches also tend to want to see a degree next to your name. If they're thinking about hiring a pastor, that's just the way it is. So the more you're thinking about wanting to do it full-time, the more prudent it is to get a seminary degree. But seminary is not a biblical requirement for eldership or for being a full-time pastor. Our church has had plenty of full-time pastors, including current ones right now, two of our full-time pastors don't have seminary degrees. Uh, we've had plenty of them in the past who serve faithfully, teach God's Word faithfully, do not have a seminary degree. Some of my favorite preachers, Tabidi Anyabwile is one of my favorite preachers, does not have a seminary degree. Tabidi's got other degrees, but no seminary degree. He's one of the best preachers I've ever heard in my life. Um, so it's not essential. It's not a biblical requirement. It's not always wise. Opportunity costs can vary widely depending on your job, your family, your circumstances. These days, there's the considerations of online versus in person. I know a number of you brothers have started studying online. I would just articulate a couple of downsides of doing it online. Less choice of what classes and professors you take Sometimes not always getting the best class uh, in a given subject that you might have been able to get if you're there in person. It can be harder to motivate. You could be isolated, especially if you don't have other people you're studying with. If this is just you and your computer in your living room on a Tuesday night. There's other upsides of studying in person as well. Relationships with faculty, relationships with fellow students, the resources there like a library, and then the focus and reinforcement of having kind of a band of brothers there in person that you're there to do this with and who are kind of holding you accountable and the kind of rolling conversations and arguments you can have throughout three to four years of sharpening. But a big question is how does that relate to your ministry in your local church? How much opportunity do you have right now in your local church to grow, to serve, to be poured into, to be sharpened, to, to test out ministry gifts? The more that's the case, the more it might, sense to, might make sense to stay put into seminary online. 
the more formation you're getting from your local church there in person, the more it might make sense to say, hey, uh, I'm going to prioritize this over maximizing the seminary degree. Um, sorry, I'm just mindful of the time. James, you wanted to finish at 150, didn't you? Ish. Hang on, recalculating. Recalculating. All right, but I do want to leave time for Q&A. Um, all right, that's all I'm going to say about seminary. Hang on a second. Where'd my handout go? Brief pause. Mm. I am just going to say something about filtering. We're going to skip ambition because we kind of talked about it a little bit already. Come back to it in Q&A if we want to. Filtering, here's what I mean. Every morning around the process of making breakfast for my family, I brew two pour-over cups of coffee. I am interested in the coffee's flavor as much as its medicinal value, so I want the taste. So I grind just the beans we need. I weigh it out. These days, I, I weigh it up on the scale to get the right ratio. You pour the water in just enough to cover the beans. You let it soak. You let it off gas. The bubbles come up. Wait 30 seconds. You pour in the rest of the water. Then it takes like another three minutes to drip through that tiny little filter, and there you have a delicious cup of coffee. Now, there are far more efficient ways to brew coffee, but faster methods don't produce the same depth of flavor. So there are ways that might look efficient in trying to prepare for pastoral ministry or get yourself into a pastoral role, but they won't always produce the same depth of character. So one of my biggest pieces of advice to anybody who aspires to pastoral ministry is to submit to processes of filtering that can seem inefficient. That could simply be contentedly pursuing opportunities, but not having as many of them as you would like. It could be staying in a job for various reasons that just doesn't seem to be the main thing you want to be doing with your life, but that it's where the Lord has you and you don't really see an open door elsewhere. It could be focusing on shepherding your family to the, uh, at the expense of certain ministry initiatives. Or there could be some other, uh, other more practical ways of filtering. Oh, there's a great quote here from Don Carson. I'll squeeze it in. Um, He's summarizing this kind of social uh, observer who talks about filtering in leadership and organizations. He, uh, this is Carson summarizing this other guy. He says, in most industries and organizations, leaders are filtered. They're tested, scrutinized, battered a little, and they learn a great deal as they slowly rise through the system. A few leaders make it through unfiltered, and these are extreme leaders who tend to be either geniuses or wackos. <laughs> I'm not sure this analysis is always accurate, but what is obvious is that when a movement is expanding rapidly, there's more opportunity for leaders to rise into positions of real power without ever having been filtered. That's dangerous. To be catapulted into a position of prominence, leadership authority with a minimum of filtering is dangerous for your own soul and dangerous for the souls of people under you. So if you have an aspiration that feels like it's being slowed down, that feels like it's being squashed, that feels like it's being sat on by the Lord himself, might be because the Lord has determined that you need some sitting on. So here's some ways to filter. Again, leading a family, raising children especially, could be devoting yourself to getting experience in the church without getting any title or pay. There's the possibility in many churches of serving as a lay elder, where you are one of the pastors, you're not getting paid for it, but you're just contributing. 
You're serving alongside the other elders, you're shepherding, you're counseling, you're teaching. There can be entry-level ministry roles, like our church has a pastoral assistant. Uh, They do administrative work and they help the pastors and they're kind of on their way to, Lord willing, serving as pastors. Uh, It could be serving as an associate or assistant pastor, but a few pitfalls to watch out there. Number one would be accepting a call when you don't know the pastor or the church as well as you should. It might sound good. They might use all the same buzzwords. You might think, oh, we're on the same page. This sounds great. And then get into it and realize that there was some common vocabulary masking some very significant differences. So a second caution would be underestimating philosophical differences and how divisive those differences could be. Uh, A third pitfall in being an associate or an assistant pastor is signing on to a role you don't really want. You think, well, I really want to be doing ministry. I'd love to be done with my job. This church is willing to hire me. They say it's half admin, half pastoral. Maybe I can hold my nose for the admin part. Yeah, it's probably going to be more like 75% admin, 25% pastoral, and then you're really not going to want to do it. So be careful about signing on to a role you don't really want. A fourth, a fourth word of caution would be beware the vague succession plan. Math students and teachers here will know the concept of an asymptote. It's a line that gets ever nearer to a point without actually reaching it. That's how some pastors retire. They draw ever nearer to retirement without actually ever getting there. James, I hope you don't mind me telling you telling the story. When James was thinking about kind of what ministry opportunities to pursue before planting New Covenant, he talked to a number of pastors who kind of, you know, oh, maybe you could be an associate, you know, bring your people with you, all this kind of thing. And there was kind of a string of pastors who talked a big game about retiring and then just really proved not to want to do that. Is that an accurate summary of some of those experiences? (laughs) So anyways, beware the vague succession plan. James could tell you more about that. I hope that's some useful counsel to those of you who are thinking about pursuing this path. I just want to close with one word of encouragement. It's how I end the book. It's just to set our hearts in the right direction about all this. Uh, Ray Ortland Jr. recently finished up pastoring Emanuel Church in Nashville, which he founded. Ray Ortland Sr., his dad was a pastor of Lake Avenue Congregational Church in Pasadena for decades. A, a line of godly men whose children, Dane and Gavin and others, continue to bless us with their writings and their ministry. Here are Ray Ortland Sr.'s last words to Ray Ortland Jr. The, the summary, my two-word summary for it is cherish Christ. I'll close with this, pray, and we'll do Q&A. Here's, here's Ray Jr. telling the story. Early on Sunday, July 22, 2007, my dad woke up in his hospital room in Newport Beach. He knew it was finally his day of release from this life. He had the nurse call the family in. My wife Janie and I were far away in Ireland for ministry that day. We didn't know what was happening back home. But the family gathered at dad's bedside. They read scripture. They sang hymns. Dad spoke a word of patriarchal blessing and admonition to each one, a message suited to encourage and guide. He pronounced over them all the blessing of Aaron. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And then quietly he fell asleep. Later, I asked my sister about dad's message to me. It was this. Tell Bud 
Ministry isn't everything. Jesus is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that whether we are serving as pastors, desire to pastor, or simply want to use the gifts you've given us to build up the body of Christ and to glorify you and to spend ourselves in your service, Father, we pray that we would cherish Christ more than we cherish serving Him. We pray that we would cherish being saved more than being significant. We pray that we would rely more on being loved by you and less on what we do for you. Father, we pray now that as we have a few minutes to discuss these things, that you'd give us uh, insight and encouragement. May we instruct and build up each other. In Jesus' name, amen.